going on, everybody, and welcome to Libations and Liberation. I'm your host, Arnetta Viela-Smith, and I hope that I can start your week off a little bit doper. (laughs) So I've been on this journey of decolonization, unlearning the Eurocentric ideology principles culture that is embedded in our communities. And so I'm so excited to have the opportunity to be in conversation with my guest for today, Daniela Guillermo Rodriguez. Um, but before we get into that, let's pour some libations. I want to offer libations for all of our ancestors and our elders and those in our communities who have really stepped up for um, racial justice and um, who can provide us knowledge and guidelines and um, advice and strategies to continue the struggle against um, white supremacy, um, human supremacy, right? And so it's fitting that our episode is called Unlearning Supremacy because that's what this aims to do is to help First and foremost, myself, right? This is my own personal journey. But hopefully through these conversations, you'll be able to take some wisdom from it as well. So with these words, I offer uh, love, light, respect, and strength to continue their journey towards freedom and liberation. Ashe, amen, and so it is. All right, so let's get on with the show. Next, we have the conversation that I'm so excited to bring you um, the conversation between myself and Daniela Guillermo Rodriguez. She's a queer Latinx film of African, Central American, Indigenous, and European ancestry. She was born in Costa Rica and is currently a settler living on stolen lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people in what they call Vancouver, British Columbia. Daniela supports community members through education and coaching and designing lifestyles for liberation. She's passionate about creating opportunities for decolonization in our everyday lives. One of the things that I noticed in your intro is that you describe yourself as so many different um, ethnic and racial identities. If you could just give us a little a little bit about who you are as a person what are your roots? And when I mean roots, like what are the aspects of your identities, of your experiences um, that really brought you to who you are right now? Yeah. So I want to start off with saying this is a long journey and not one I was familiar with at all as of maybe six, five or six years ago. Um, because having to describe yourself by all of your identities informs your worldview when you enter into conversation, and that's why it's important. But sometimes we might not know our identities because we haven't had the opportunity to explore them, um, depending on where we grew up or the experiences around us that inform that opportunity to speak up, especially about um, your queerness or perhaps even your race. Um, So for me... This journey began um, when I started working on the reserves here in Vancouver, which are reservations for the American folks, and realizing that I knew more Indigenous, local Indigenous history than my own Indigenous history, and then thinking to myself, 
I have no confirmation of my own indigenous history. It's just what I've been told. And a lot of folks are in that situation where they've been told something, they might believe it, and then realize later on that they're not, especially with a lot of the call-out culture that has been happening. Um, people are like, you know, you're representing this indigenous community, but you have no ties to it that anybody knows of, and you've just won, like, a big award or whatever for a film that you created. So I was like, oh, shucks, I really need to check this out. So for me, that journey began with... Um, identifying first my my traditions what am I doing and who am I supporting and what I believe and how I interact with my community and the world around me and then it led into my roots and that crisscrossed with the whole Latinx thing I'm like hmm so I identify as Latina always have <laughs> but who gave me this name oh some European guys and you know what the real Latinos if you look into them it's a group out of Italy hate that all of Latin America has this name because they're like, nah, you guys aren't from here. You're not even like, what are you talking about? So that's a little lone fact, but it's an interesting one nonetheless. And so I'm like, okay, so who am I? <laughs> Did 23andMe and some of those tests. And although there's a ton of um, discrepancies in there, blah, blah, blah. They're super helpful because at least now I have confirmation. I don't know where these groups are from because if you actually look at it for indigenous folks in the Americas, they're all grouped into one from the tip of the Americas to Patagonia. It is one community. So that wasn't very helpful. Yeah, they they did the same thing for African people. It's like they just put, because I did the 23andMe, and they put sub-Saharan Africa. And I was like, okay, okay. And then when I looked, I was like, oh, that's the entire continent except for the northern tip. Yeah, and it's because their data sets are messed up. The interesting fact about how these things came to be was because it was due to the um, unearthing of the cemetery of enslaved peoples in New York and trying to find those people's history. So I thought that was super interesting that that's where it started, but it's not where it is now. But regardless, that's <laughs> some, another story for another day. Um, so that kind of led me into discovering, well, who am I? If I didn't even know these things, if I couldn't confirm them, what else don't I know about my own experience and what informs it? And so that led into my whole um, looking into colonization, first of all, and then my own decolonization of these identities that I had taken on. Um, like, for example, in for Latinx culture, for any women, women identified or women socialized people there, you know that there's a ton of responsibilities that are given on you that aren't given to guys, you know? So who came up this is how do I play into this how can I start living outside of that standard or norm anyway so a lot of that kind of came into my journey and so when I speak I like to say that because I'm very comfortable with all questions around what I do share and for those folks that are just starting on their journey I welcome those questions by fronting my own identity that way tell us more about that because I don't think there's a lot of folks who know that right because just like you had mentioned before, we're often told our identities and histories versus us really being concretely aware of our histories and stories. So um, can you expand a little bit on that, on that research? It sounds like you did a little bit of research around it. Yeah, so a little bit about the term Latino and how it came to be. I'm actually gonna read this out right now because I don't wanna mess it up, but the term Latin American was coined in France under Napoleon III and played a role in his campaign to apply cultural kinship with France. So basically, this Napoleon guy wanted to suck Latin America into being a French territory and came up with that. Um, obviously, it didn't work because we speak Spanish for the majority. But yeah, so and it's an Italian or a term from Italy. So it's all a mesh. I don't know what they did back there, but 
they tried. <laughs> it's interesting though, the way uh, language works and just thinking about how some labels stay and some transform or even disappear. And I'm curious on why that happens. What happens to perpetuate this term that's not even through a colonial lens, not even uh, a part of the culture? Does that make sense? I guess it was a part of the culture, but no longer is a part of the culture. So how is it being perpetuated that is still such a strong term, I guess is what I'm asking. Okay, I think I think I understand what you're saying. Let me go with this and then you let me know. So <laughs> there was a, um, do- well, there is a document. I believe it's called COCO. Um, it's run by an organization called COCO and it's called White Supremacy and Organizations, if you want to look into it. But it talks about holding, um, that white supremacy holds language, the written word as an authority over oral tradition. And in oral traditions, language is allowed to change and mold as needed, you know, just like we create different words, just like there's abonics or Spanglish or whatever. There's tons of different ways of communicating in a way that's more authentic to us. Originally, prior to written language being a thing, it was the same way with oral tradition. Stuff would change and be as applicable as possible. And also, the sounds would change. So that's something that I learned recently was um, people who were Squamish, it was Quilmina Sparrow who said this, um, and she was talking about how their language is very squashy. She's like Squamish, Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh. She's like, it sounds like you have seaweed in your mouth because those are the sounds that we are um, experiencing every day as coastal nations compared to folks that um, have their origins in a forest where she's like, things sound more cracky because you're always stepping on um, on wood. And so I thought that was very interesting that even sounds and words change, but also with terminology, because we've adopted this written word being superior, we don't change language as needed. And we hold on to not just the words, but their meanings for longer than necessary, or maybe not necessary, but longer than, than applicable. Um, so that would be how I would answer that question. We haven't been allowed to evolve it with our knowledge that we've learned because it's still there. And that's why, for example, I use the word decolonize. That isn't the most appropriate term for what we are doing when we're looking at colonization and trying to change it because it actually applies to um, a very specific time during the decolonization of African countries by all these um, European countries that had run in there, taken up, I think it was called the scramble for Africa, where all these European countries went in there, exerted their dominance, and then exited. So it's a very specific um, event. But it's also the word that most people find most accessible when talking about this. So that's why I keep it in my language with that caveat. Um, Because for me, the work is more important for it to be accessible and applicable than for me to argue for a word. Like, I'm like, we'll leave that to academics. (laughs) Which I am, listen, because I'm like... (laughs) I think for, for me, I can't speak for every academic, but for me, I think words matter because they have consequences attached to them, right? Uh, and so how do we how do we not only understand language and words, but how can we mi- manipulate them, right, to work for us? I have to say, uh, from all the people that I know and have discussed these kind of issues with, and then I'm also going to come back to this term decolonization because that's piqued my interest as well. I think you're one of the few people who actually know a lot about 
cultures and histories outside of your own. Um, and so I'm curious on, um, cause I know for in the United States, let me just say for me, I'm very versed on black history and culture and ethnicity and identity, but specifically within the U S. And I think that's something that as a person who was born and raised here, we've been socialized to, to think that our culture is superior. So we don't really need to know about all these other cultures, um, um, I think that's why you're starting to see a push for us to learn more than one language, right? Because that wasn't always, you know, if you look at our history, you see that if you knew any other language besides English, if you spoke any other language besides English, you were punished, severely punished for it. And so now you see a switch in that, right? And so is that a part of your journey as to understand, or is that sort of like sort of something that just happened on the way to learning about yourself? Or does it have something to do with your migration story? Um, I know that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but it totally makes sense. And I would totally, I was thinking that I'm like, that is the identity that, yeah, I share because it does have a lot when you immigrate because I immigrated when I was really young, I was three years old, but I became a third culture kid and I didn't know what that meant at the time, but it's that confusion between you go to school and you act one way and you come home and that's unacceptable. And you see those funny memes, you know, like, oh, you know, white parents don't hit their kids, you know, ever. And then you're a Spanish kid and you're like, or a Latino kid and your parents don't say, we're not going to hit you. They just look at you and you know you're getting hit at home because you can't do that on the street. It's that kind of dichotomy. <laughs> so um, you become a third culture kid and that you develop your own culture to navigate both of these and be able to honor both of them at the same time. Or not, perhaps you're not thinking of honoring them, but navigating them both is probably the more appropriate term. So that definitely came with that. And then also not having a lot of Latinx people in my life growing up. Um, we went to a Latinx church, and so there was a lot of folks there. Um, but they came from all over, and they wouldn't have considered themselves Latinx when they were migrating north. It's a term that we use here, kind of lump ourselves together. I don't, actually, I don't know where the term, how it works now as far as, because there's also Hispanic and there's, there's tricks with both of them. But a lot of them were like, no, we're Mexican. We're migrating because of this specific experience in Mexico. In El Salvador, we're using this specific experience for our migration. We were um, from Costa Rica. We didn't need to migrate. My parents were pretty well off, but my dad had migrated from Honduras to Costa Rica. And so we understood that there was a lot of stuff going on there. So growing up here, it was always that lens of um, we are another culture and we're navigating this culture and seeing that in my neighborhood, I've said before, I'm like it was all brown people, but none of us were from the same place. So it was like, well, the Fijians do this and the Indians do that when there's different celebrations, you know, Sri Lankans do the other thing. So it was always that interest in, you know, whose party am I going to go to next because it's Diwali or it's um, Nawaz or something else. So I think it's just something I grew up with. And then when I went to university, I did take intercultural studies because I thought that was super interesting. I'm like, you know, parties, that's basically all I was after. <laughs> I feel that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and that was as a kid, you know, I was just like, whatever. I think that's I think that's interesting, though, because um, I'm not from California, even though I live here now. I'm actually from St. Louis, Missouri. And so when I grew up, there was not that diversity. Um, I think we had one white family in our neighborhood. Right. Because we lived in and I mean, it's still racist America. But, you know, it was like, you know, during the 80s, it was more segregated. Right. And so mm -hmm. everything surrounded us. We were black people. Um, 
And when I mean black people, I mean people of African or African-Americans, not folks who are African people, are immigrants. Um, and so and so we didn't really get exposed uh, to different cultures in that way. Um, okay. But we were still keenly aware that we had to uh, what you call a third culture kid, I think you said. Um, we here in the U.S. for Black people, it's called double consciousness, right? Um, yeah. W.E.B. Du Bois uh, talks about it, but it was actually a white guy that came up with that term. But we were keenly aware. And just talking to you, I'm now I'm thinking like, you know, and I know because we've been socialized, like you go to school, but when you're in a Black space, it's interesting to still be socialized and assimilated into European culture. Do you know what I mean? Without Europeans being there. Yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's a perpetuation of, in my opinion, violence. That's a perpetuation of violence by the people who are oppressed. Oppression by the oppressed, right? And it's not a new concept, um, but just thinking through it, talking with you, it's, it's very interesting because... Um, you know, we have black leadership, we have a black principal, black teachers. There was people in power positions that were black and still perpetuating um this 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 oppression, right? This this need to um to be able to be successful. I won't even say to fit in or anything because I'm sure their driving force was to make sure that we were okay as black people. Um, living in a racist country, but we weren't exposed to any of uh, like, you know, there was no Latinos where we were, um, but we didn't have that. We, it was black and Eastern European randomly. It was Eastern Europeans. <laughs> um, and so we, we knew about, you know, Eastern Europeans, but we didn't know about, you know, uh, there was no English people. There was no African immigrants. There were no, um, there were, if there was, it would be like one family. I think there was one Puerto Rican family that lived in Illinois, which is right over the bridge. And I dated the daughter and that's the only reason I knew. <laughs> so like, but there was no other Latinos. It was like white or black. And come then coming to California, one of the fortunate aspects of, of being segregated is, um, perpetuating the homogenizing of groups. So for example, down here, there's all type of folks, Mexicans, El Salvadorians, um, uh, Guatemalans, like all over, right? What we call Latin America. But if you ask somebody, everybody's Mexican, right? <laughs> because that's the closest country to where we are, like the border rather. And so it's interesting to have the perspective of having an intercultural community and being curious about the different cultures because you were exposed to it. Is that something that's organic that happened to you? Or were you guys segregated? You know what I'm saying? Like, were you segregated? And so that is that how it, or was it like you can go wherever you want? Cause I know Canada is not, you know what I mean? Canada's racist too. Like, yeah. let's be real. I've read their histories against yeah. indigenous and black bodies. But do you think that where you were allowed for that curiosity? Do you think that it just came out of you as a person? Do you think it was because you were exposed to it? Uh, and were you exposed to it because you all were like kind of just forced together in like a racial ghetto um, 
So many questions, so many thoughts. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. I was really thinking bell hooks in the book Ain't I a Woman when you started talking, and now I don't remember why, but I think it had to do with that assimilation in the way that we think and how that developed, and she talks a lot about that, um, how the way that we aspire to fit into culture, which is white supremacy, how do we fit into white supremacy as people of color, um, and how does that manifest in the way that we inform our experiences, and in turn, the experiences of others as we perpetuate white supremacy against other people of color. So I think that's an interesting read for anybody that's further interested in that one. Um, and then about my personal interest and living in Canada, I think of um, the oversimplification of the states being a melting pot and Canada being a mosaic where everybody shows up in one piece. But that was also a result of Trudeau, um, the father, not this guy that's the prime minister right now, having implemented a multiculturalism policy, which not only served to like highlight different cultures, but also erase the experiences of a lot of the indigenous people that were here before. Because now he's saying, oh no, we're all this group of people, but you're not reflecting on the guys that were here before and the guys that we've stolen. Now you're just saying, we're all in this together, stealing and occupying land <laughs> and exercising settler colonialism. Um, which is me as an immigrant coming and acting on behalf of white supremacy to take away land by occupying space on stolen land. So that's fun. But my personal experience um, with this has been, yeah, I, so Canada isn't segregated. Like I lived in Springfield, Missouri for a while and did a lot of work in Kansas City, Missouri. And I told, I didn't understand red, I didn't know what redlining was at the time and I didn't understand how this worked. But I was like, I don't understand these neighborhoods. There's folks that aren't well off living right next to folks that are super well off in like super nice homes. It is a black community. And I didn't, I didn't, it didn't click. I didn't understand it because coming from where I lived here in Canada, there was, um, I lived in a low income neighborhood. So that definitely informs the reason for there being so many immigrants specifically in my area and not being as blended. So for example, I went to, um, a private school because a lot of Latino and immigrant people think private school is the best, even though public schools are just about the same here. And we only had one white girl. And I think in our whole school, it was her and her sister. I don't know of other white kids, you know, and that was kind of my journey. So it, it wasn't a lot of exposure to um, white folks exercising white supremacy in my life. It was other people of color exercising it there. But that interest of different cultures always came from Again, my dad was a big influence in this, always questioning what's going on. So, for example, we didn't have a TV in the home because he was, I remember, Mar, what was that show? One of the Marlon brothers was in there, or Wayne's brothers. And he was like, I don't like this show. You guys can't watch it because I need people of color to look smart in all the shows. That was his big thing. I need them to be well represented. And this is funny, but they're not being, you know, they're not people that I don't want you to aspire to just act goofy all the time at home. So he really instilled that in us. So our stories um, that he would share, and he was always sharing stories, he's a big storyteller, would come from that perspective. It's who's doing that. Um, so for example, Marcus Garvey now is a guy I'm looking into more because he talked about Costa Rica and living in Costa Rica and talking about it being ground zero for this exploitation through um, imperialism of corporations in um, countries of minority cultures. So it's always informed my worldview, um, how different cultures interact, but I didn't have the language to share that until very recently. So that's why a lot of times when I talk to folks about decolonization, I'm like, when did you learn the word? And when did you realize you started doing the work? Because a lot of us has been doing the work since we were kids, you know? 
like you said, um, growing up and realizing there was something going on, but not sure what it was. Yeah, I think uh, I was a young adult, definitely. Honestly, I'm having um, mixed feelings because I think there was something, well, let me just say this, segregation is a violent system, period. Let me just say that first and foremost. On the flip side, however, it wasn't based on class, right? It was based on race. So you had a mixed economic class neighborhood where you saw black doctors and lawyers and, you know, things that you could aspire to. And then once, you know, once, you know, policies were put in place where redlining became illegal, of course, a lot of those um, upper class black families, right, went out into the suburbs. With that said, uh, okay. the flip side of that corn, corn, coin, that's my, that's my accent. That coin <laughs> uh, <laughs> is we didn't have to deal with white racism in the same way that being exposed to whiteness, you have to, you know what I'm saying? And so, and then we also were always fully immersed in our culture and our music. So I saw the beauty, right? And being surrounded by blackness that I think doesn't exist anymore because now when you go into quote unquote, a black neighborhood is not multi-class anymore. It's legit poverty most times. There's are exceptions to the rule um, out here. We have a black Hollywood neighborhood. Um, I forgot the name of it. But with that said, there was a beauty. When I look at, and I'm saying this, I'm not romanticizing our social history as Black people here. But when I look at the times of segregation and I see Black schools and I recognize we didn't have the financial resources, the economic resources because of racism in the government. But we do have Black teachers who know that we can learn as Black people. And once Brown versus Board of Education passed, it feels like a lot of that just got disrupted. And so how would it look if instead of integration, because I feel like that's still what we're on in the United States, right? is this concept of the melting pot. And what would it look like, though, if we had something similar to the multicultural policy that you guys have without the erasure? Yeah, no, but I have so many thoughts on that. And I don't have the language. And I want to be very clear that I'm learning in public. So if I say something that's messed up, it's because I haven't fully formed it. And I'm still exploring it. So for example, being um and this, again, is not my experience, but it's something that I've observed when I'm trying to do research around this, is what does it look like to, again, going back, so decolonizing would be, colonization is the disruption of relationships between people and land and yourself. You're asked to uh, separate yourself from that in order to line yourself up with white supremacy. And that hurts even white people, as we know. So as folks as me as a brown you know immigrant on these lands settler on these lands how do i engage in a way that supports the people that were stolen from africa and the people on whose lands on whose stolen lands i am now and what does that relationship look like because there's no going back now so how do we redefine this like you said with when there was segregation or even when i was back in my country 
I had this reflected back on me, you know, excellence and different ways of being within this type of body. But now I don't have that reflected back at me, you know, so who am I learning from? And there's a lot of um, black academics and authors that I get to learn from. And I consider them kind of like my intellectual ancestors because I get to stand on all of their reflections. But when I look at, for example, First Nations and trying to learn from them, there is none of that because they were not allowed to go to school or they could go to university and lose their status as um, being recognized by the government as a First Nations person. And then there was also the whole cultural genocide with the residential schools, and that's a whole other thing. But then how can I learn from both of these um, communities in a way that honors them and repairs my relationship with them for the harm that I cause. Again, I'm a brown person, which means I'd be light skinned depending again on who is looking at me, whether they consider me Mexican, black or anything else because it's their lens on my body. Um, how do I engage in that healing of us as a community? So like you said, when there was black communities, there was so much development because you were not battling this lens, the white lens or white gaze on me and for me right now that's something that I struggle with especially in the public eye when people are like oh you're a white girl you can't be talking you know or you're not this or not that or whatever and I'm like race was made up by some white guy to put me in a category outside of his you know so the fact that we're perpetuating this against each other is tricky but when it's a society doing it on you well where do you find those pockets in a long time for a long time I was very much on the side of we all need to come together and heal and I'm like I can't be healing when I am constantly being um, harmed because of people's um, ignorant, even though they're trying to learn, um, process. I can't be part of their process because it hurts me too much to be a part of that. So how do we go back into these um, communities, like you were saying, in order for us to heal and reframe the way we see ourselves and see each other within that community? So when we step out, we can interact from a point of strength rather than a point of always battling this um, this this experience, I guess, if that makes sense. I think it totally makes sense. How do we, honestly, when, when you said that, this has been coming up a lot for me because I've been having um, these type of conversations. And I'm also, let me just say, I'm also always, always learning in public. I And I always tell this to my students. When I'm teaching, I make mistakes and I don't care. I just keep on pushing, you know what I mean? But I'd be like, oops, my bad. Um, just to show them that they can make, as a professor, I still make mistakes. So it's whatever for them, right? Um, but this has been coming up in Audrey Lord's <laughs> the, the, the master's tools, because we've been so conditioned. And I think that's is, um, one of the things that I respect about your content and um, the way you interact with your guests. And I appreciate that because it is an opportunity, right? To start reflecting on how can we heal? How can we, I don't have another word for it. How can we heal as, as people of color without utilizing the tools of the oppressor? And what does that look like? That looks like policing racial identity. Um, that looks like asserting our identity in spaces, right? That's not meant for us. Um, that's, and, and we do it, right? Um, I keep, I keep battling it with myself. I'm, I'm real good about policing. <laughs> I'm not even gonna lie. But then how do you move beyond that? 
how do you as a person of color, right? Create space because you know, our spaces that we create are most oftentimes created because we need safe spaces to be. How can we create these spaces, these safe spaces, brave spaces, healing spaces, um, without perpetuating that concept of policing, but also understanding that we don't want certain people in the space because we've created space to get away from you. What is the imagining? What does that look like without utilizing tools of the oppressor? And this is either you can answer it or not. I don't think there's an answer that sounds like a reimagining of ways to be. Uh, maybe you do. I mean, this is your journey. You do, you, you're the consultant. You're the, I don't know. <laughs> no, and I totally, I'm like, no, as you're saying it, I'm like, there's no way for me to imagine that because I don't think society has provided me enough information to, to get there, you know, unless I look way back. But way back, we would have been in our own, there wasn't this melding of, of different communities and cultures. So I'm like, no, I don't know. I know for right now, for me, the spaces that I've walked into. For example, when I went into, um, I was in Mexico last year, exactly this time. Actually, I think Trudeau was calling us back at this time. And I had just left a week prior to go into my inlands and explore my identity there because I'm like, I'd really like to learn more about my own indigenous history. And then I came right back. But I remember being in this indigenous community and sitting there and I'm like, I am so relaxed. What is this? bodily experience that I'm having at being so relaxed here. And I'm like, I, it's maybe because I see myself reflected back at me in every face that I see. And I've never had this before and hear my language and see my parents, you know, again, I say my parents a lot because I didn't have a lot of community around me. So, you know, see people that look like my siblings, like they're all around me. And again, no space is safe, but that felt very safe and very calming and now I know it to be a somatic experience an experience that I've processed through my brain that's now reflected in my body this relaxing that I didn't know I needed of being in white spaces or spaces where I had to constantly assert myself that's what it I'm like how do white people feel when they're walking around and they see themselves everywhere they don't have this bodily stress you know and I think a lot of POCs also have not had that experience and so when they walk into spaces that um whether or not they present as POC. So you walk into a space and you don't realize that that is an experience that happens that people yearn for. And so you try to assert yourself in that space, even though it's not for you, because you're stuck on processing it intellectually and not recognizing that it's a whole body experience. And again, I think that segregation of our bodies being a muscle basically that carries our brainers around and that we relate to other things through our brains only is a white supremacist idea. It doesn't recognize us as a body. So that would be where I would be in that, in that discussion. I don't know how I would perhaps police the space, but I do know that right now in this moment, um, spaces for mixed race folks have been the most comfortable for me because I don't have to show up and prove that I am multicultural or multiracial. I just show up and whatever I say, people will accept because they understand that experience. Whereas in other places, people try to put me into boxes that I'm like, nah, none of those fit me. And you're not going to give me all the boxes either. <laughs> just check all so, of that apply. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel that I feel that. And I think that's a dope way to explain it because um, it was the other day we were planning for our department and um 
And one of the things we're doing is branding, right? And it's, so they're asking us, well, how do you want your people to feel? And I'm like, I want them to feel like home, like they're at home. You know what I mean? Um, and I know that in everything that I do, that's always my goal. And I didn't really understand where it came from. And now just like talking to you, it makes sense for me because I'm usually in spaces where I'm the only black person, clearly black person. And, and you know, um, and that means spaces where maybe there are other black people, but they're definitely lighter and can pass. But, but like legit, uh, thinking about this concept of home and how do we create home in spaces when so much we feel like we don't belong is a vital important part. And I guess that is like connecting to what I'm saying. How can we feel like home wherever? And does that mean that we really do have to um, get rid of racism, even though that's going to be yeah. a humongous feat? I don't think it's impossible, right? I think I think it's possible. Anybody, anything is possible, right? Um, but can we make home, regardless? Do you know what I mean? Can we, uh, as a black person, can I walk into an all white room and just be at home? You know what I'm saying? With with my my own personal history, with my own experiences, can I go into that room? What does that look like? How can I create that? How can I create space that feels like home no matter who walks in there, whether you're light or you're dark? And so now this is a good segue because damn, good consulting. Thanks for the consultation. <laughs> oh my goodness. So I did mention that, you know, you are a consulting, you're an educator, you're a coach. So tell me more about that. And then um, I, I also want to just say this so I won't forget I do want to hear decolonization. You said that that's not appropriate, but you keep it in your uh, in your language because you know that's what people are used to. Yeah. So I think for my whole life, I've always known that I love being a teacher, but I knew that the school system wasn't for me, and I wasn't exposed to. Again, I was pre-internet baby, so <laughs> we didn't get the internet. Well, we got it maybe when I was in grade school, but Facebook didn't come around until I was in college, so I wasn't aware of all these connections that we have with alternate ways of being have been through social media for the most part, so I wasn't aware of a lot of stuff. So I'm like, I'm definitely not going into teaching, so I went into intercultural studies, and my focus was on how subcultures navigate um, their way through the dominant culture. That was always a big one for me as, you know, a brown woman, how do I interact? Why does my neighborhood, um, how is it different? How do the kids in my neighborhood succeed? And then doing my work in Kansas City, and I got to work all over the Caribbean and um, the States as well with different communities. And some of the stuff that would come up is, you know, kids would tell me I've never been here. I didn't think I was welcome in this space, you know, and that was when we went into Starbucks. And I had, it was me and as many kids as I could fit in my car. I was driving a 16 passenger. So it was probably 15 kids in that car. I think all of them were black except for one um, Mexican girl. <laughs> and we walk in there and I'm like, we're going to have Starbucks and we're going to go to the corner. and We're going to be fancy because this is a fancy area of town. And I know that for myself, it was very important. As a kid, I didn't have that experience of going into fancy places because you don't you think you can't go in there and i'm like we have the money and all they understand is green so we're going to take up our space here and we did obviously safely we weren't like you know trying to challenge the cops right <laughs> but it was those kind of experiences so how can we expand that to more people and that led me into 
creating community through arts because I've always worked in mental health. I've been in and out of there for 17 years. I say out because it is a lot of, um, it's very taxing on yourself. So I took my breaks, but pretty much 17 years. Um, and then also the arts because I use a lot of arts with the folks that I worked with who were unable to verbalize the emotions or some of the experiences that they had. So I went and tried to create community around that. Um, got my master's in arts for social change, thinking I could use this information that we get from folks through arts, of course, with their consent, um, to implement policy change on their behalf, because a lot of times they weren't able to verbalize what it was that they needed. So um, I discovered working with the government, I'm like, I have no desire for this. So how can we turn this into education? When I came back from Mexico, I was like, okay, I don't have my job anymore. <laughs> So it was kind of like, how can I do all this stuff that I really enjoy? And it all kind of came together. So that was really nice, um, educating people, because I think we are used to processing things through words and through our brains. So before we start diving into, you know, somatic experiences of race, <laughs> let's start with educating ourselves on our history. I think you've said, and I'm going to get the quote wrong, but you always say, you know your story or know your history. So how can we do that in ways that are um, accessible to us? Um, and consulting was tied with that because I've had different groups come up to me and tell me, you know, how can we implement this in our organization? Um, the thing with decolonization is that, first of all, it's not the goal. It's a process to understanding what colonization is and how we perpetuate it and uphold it so that we can start to um, divest from it. And also knowing the goal is a very personal journey because it has to do with, yeah, who am I? Who are my ancestors? Where do I want to go? What is my relationship with the land that I'm on and the community that I'm in? So that looks extremely different for everybody. So my, what I tell people, I'm like, it's like a 101. You can start to educate yourself on what relationships look like because I think decolonization is a focus on repairing of relationships. Because um, again, racism is just, a, a relationship that's been broken based on what we see based on people's melanin like it's silly or people's um gender perceived gender identity how i think they present i'm going to treat them differently like again how do i unlearn this and also knowing that i'm part of a longer journey white supremacy took you know how many decades or centuries to build it's going to take i believe it, we go by some like breakup rule in relationships you know it takes twice as long or something like that so I, that's what they say yeah I'm like I also understand that I'm part of a journey and I'm very happy to be part of this journey even though I may not ever see the fruits of my labor if I want to put it that way but I then find my hope in my um, future generations and who I'm able to share this with so that is um that's what gives me joy in life and hope in life. And also understanding that our relationship with nature might be one of the most important relationships because if the world doesn't last long enough for us to repair relationships with each other, then will that even happen? Will we be able to picture this future? So, mm, And can I just, uh, cause you kind of reminded me of something. Um, and I think this might've been the reason I started to follow you and, and, and reach out and, and, and engage with you. Um, but this concept of nature, uh, I think when we talk about relationships, we usually think about it between humans. Um, and, and, how this journey of unlearning also needs 
to be rooted in unlearning supremacy, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's what got me with your post because as a ethnic studies scholar, of course, at the forefront of my mind, right, is the white supremacy, like race supremacy, ethnic supremacy, not so much human supremacy. And I mean, I mean, that really me up. <laughs> because now, it's, it, you could ask my wife, she's so like, she just rolls her eyes at me now. <laughs> because because now I'm looking at plants, like, I, it's like, it's sort of like I knew this. Yeah. Right. But now I'm very much conscious of it. So now I'm looking at plants and I'm just like, yo, like <laughs> I talk to plants now. I didn't used to do that. Yeah. Like I am more connected <laughs> to the land. And I think that is it has given me something that I don't think I've ever had before. I came across Maria Rupa, M-A-Y-R-A, Rupa, R-U-P-A. Um, her colonization framework which says that colonization is supported by supremacy and capitalism and that is a cycle by acting as supreme over nature um anything other anything that's non-male and anything that is non-white we're able to fund capitalism to keep it going for those guys on top so it's really an elitist capitalist system and that it's um it causes trauma and that segregation so it was all maria rupa and then i started looking at the local indigenous cultures, and then learning that indigenous is actually a lifestyle. It That's what that word means. It's a lifestyle that is in community with nature and with each other. I'm like, all right, this makes sense. And then I'm like, it just made sense, um, especially because I was so involved with um, the indigenous communities here um, that I was like, okay, this is why this is so important. So I had evidence of its importance around me, but it didn't click until I saw that diagram. Again, I'm just a visual person and I'm like, okay, this is why it's important. And for folks that are starting on their decolonization journey, now more recently I've discovered that it is easier to access fixing your relationship with the land because it's more accessible. Everybody understands recycling and what deforestation is bad and why pipelines are bad or whatever, you know, um, or non-renewable resources is what I should say. But um, how how can we change our perspective on that? Because we all, as all of humanity, engage in that relationship rather than my relationship with a person I consider to be other, because that might be more difficult. Um, but I feel like we prime our bodies and our hearts, our emotions and everything for that relationship with other people by understanding our relationship with land. Um, and there are a lot of um, resources out there. If you go to... Um, it's www.native-land.ca. There's a map. I, I make my students use that to do their land acknowledgement. Yeah, it's a great one. So yeah, you can understand whose land you're on. And then you go and Google what their asks are for the people that are living on their land. Mm-hmm. So that is a super easy way to start following them on Instagram. What am I supposed to do in response to the land besides just recycle specifically for the land that I'm on? Because again, the folks that are were on this land or are on this land um, that are from it have taken care of it for like not even centuries, millennia, millennia. They figured this thing out. How can I learn for them specifically for this land? Because, you know, there's forests, there's coastal lands, there's swamp lands. Everybody has a different way of engaging that depends on renewable resources and not this capitalist idea of, you know, 
consume and dispose or either this or that, but there's no in-between way of navigating how we relate to it. So I would say go to that. That's an easy way to get into this whole journey. Ashe. So that's all we have for today's show. Um, but before I leave, I want to uh, share with you uh, a quote that's really a part um, of the reason I shifted the way I I thought about things. And this comes from Carter G. Woodson um, from his book, The Miseducation of the Negro. If you can control a man's thinking, you do not have to worry about his action. When you determine what a man shall think, you do not have to concern yourself about what he will do. If you make a man feel that he is inferior, you do not have to compel him to accept an inferior status for he will seek it himself. If you make a man think that he is justly an outcast, you do not have to order him to the back door. He will go without being told. And if there is no back door, his very nature will demand one. 